1: Everybody, welcome to the Moisture Festival podcast. I am
0: comedy stunt performer Matt Baker. And I am comedy magician Louis Fox. We are both performers at the Moisture Festival. The Moisture
1: Festival, if you're unfamiliar, is a four-week festival celebrating variety arts in the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle. It is the largest festival of its kind in the world and features some of the
0: best entertainers and comedians working today. The festival happens... In the months of March and April, and not only do they have world-class variety acts, the Moisture Festival also hosts a week of burlesque shows. If you're listening to this
1: during the festival, be sure to buy your tickets now, because 95% of the shows sell out. You can get tickets to all the shows by visiting the website moisturefestival.org. On this episode of the Moisture Festival podcast, we welcome in Jamie Ian Swiss. We're recording on location at Hales
0: Ales. Yes, we're upstairs at the uh, banquet room.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we learn about his trajectory from being a uh, working in the animal industry to uh, becoming a professional magician.
0: We learn about writing magic books and why it's one of the most written about Variety arts there is.
1: And he also schools us on how to be a good MC (laughs) and the struggles that you're faced with when you have to MC a show that is as big as the Moisture Festival. Yes, I'm excited to hear this. Some cool stories, and uh, you guys are going to love it. Let's get to Jamie Ian Swiss. today's interview, we have a fantastic performer. He's a magician, an author, a keynote speaker, and scientific skeptic. He has been on the Today Show and the Late Late Show, and was the chief consultant for Penn & Teller's Sin City Spectacular. He is also the co-founder of Monday Night Magic, uh, the longest-running vaudeville show in New York City, or in all of the United States?
2: Oh. Is it? Well, uh, it's the longest-running off-Broadway show in New York, of any type, actually.
1: Uh, So, Jamie Ian-Swiss, thank you so much. That's me. Thanks for having me. Thanks Thanks for joining us. Glad to
0: be here. So, off-Broadway means what? Means not on-Broadway. Okay, so not physically on the street, or? Uh, So,
2: in New York City... The legit, so-called legit theater is considered Broadway. Broadway theaters are not on Broadway. Tourists are very often surprised to find out. They are in the traditional theater district, which is in the vicinity of Times Square, between Times Square and Hell's Kitchen. Uh, Hell's Kitchen is now called Clinton. Basically, if you you rent, they call it Hell's Kitchen, and if you buy, they call it Clinton. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so that's the theater district. That's considered Broadway. That's legitimate theater, if you will. Uh, in that term, and off Broadway is every other damn theater
0: in New York, because
2: okay. a lot of them. Yeah, and, you know, how, and if it's two hundred seats, it's equity. So, okay.
0: yeah. And how long has Magic Monday Monday Night Magic Monday, Monday Night-, Night
2: Magic Monday Magic dot com is now? I believe in our twenty fifth continuous
0: season. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. And we and were, we were paused
2: magic, for you know COVID, like just like the rest of Broadway uh Broadway community but we did a virtual show during that period nice uh, every week that was uh, actually a free show uh, and uh, but we are back with with Broadway when we basically are following the path of what the Broadway theaters are doing. So when Broadway reopened, we reopened. Ah. And
1: it's not just magic, it's all... It's
2: it's a magic show. It's not, a, oh. it's, it, it includes some variety, but it is a, we consider it a magic show. Gotcha. We pitch it as a magic show, not not a variety show. It's uh, been the same format for <clears throat> 25 years. And it's, um, it's three stage performers plus the MC mm-hmm. who also performs. And it's uh, opening and middle act in the first half, an extended intermission with two or three close-up performers performing around different areas in the theater, and then uh, basically a headliner in the second half.
1: Now, did you grow up in New York?
2: This accent's real.
1: (laughs) It's not not learned. I didn't have
2: one until I moved to San Diego.
1: (laughs) So when did you start uh, doing magic?
2: Uh, my father brought me a magic trick when I was seven years old. I was—he was not a magician. He had a friend who was. I was a—I um, was an only child. I was extremely introverted. I've since outgrown that phase, <laughs> and uh, they, my parents were always trying to introduce me to things to, as they said in those days, bring me out of myself. So I had a million hobbies and many creative things, uh, and uh, he gave me a magic trick and. The, uh, I, you know I was bit but even though I stayed I remained in magic passionately through really my whole life continuously um unlike my friends in magic who were doing you know kids birthday parties and making money that way in high school and college I didn't do any of that I didn't want to perform for kids even when I was one mm-hmm. and I've never done a kid show in my life and um so I remained a hobbyist through all that period mm-hmm. and I didn't plan to be a Become a professional magician. I never did plan; that was not my intention. And so I skipped all that, and instead, actually, I made money. I made my first creative money as a as a, a musician, starting when I was about sixteen or seventeen. And I was I made I made side money in a band for a number of years, but um, as a as a guitar player. But uh, then one thing led to another. I had two other careers beforehand, but. When I was 29, I did my first paid magic show, and I've been doing magic or things related to magic ever since. So how did the first paid show go? Uh, well, it was fine. It was actually two, I did, t- that year I did two, I booked two corporate holiday shows in December mm-hmm. through Connections, you know, whatever. Uh, and I what I had really done was I had left my previous business when I decided to make this change. I, I had left my previous business. I was married at the time, my wife at the time, my first wife had a good job in um, medicine. And she said, and I had been working intently for a few years with Peter Samuelson at that time, who was a friend and who I was working with as a creative consultant, collaborator, director, bit of a business advisor. And I got to see how... a professional magician lived up close, which I never really had. And I was working quite intently with him for a few years. And then I just reached this point, and my wife said, you know, you're young enough that if you screw up and you want to do something else, you still have time, <laughs> Nice. so why don't you take a year off, I'll support us, and you go figure it out. Ah. And so what I did was, I, I, she helped me build a magic room in the house where everything was in one space, all the books, practice area, mirrors, all of that stuff. And uh, I locked myself in the room for a year and practiced. And a year later, I went out and did those two corporate gigs, and they went fine.
0: And were you doing close-up or were you doing Close-up, close strictly okay. close-up,
2: strictly close-up. I came up a close-up guy. I'm known in the magic world as a sleight of hand artist, and a sleight of hand, especially as a card man and all the national television i've done that's what i always do on tv i've never done any i don't think i've ever done anything on tv other than have a deck of cards in my hand but in reality i do general close-up i I have a full stage mind reading show and i do a lot of stage magic in corporate settings i mean obviously i'm I'm here for the festival doing on stage so um i do you know, if I work at the Magic Cab, I've been working at the Magic Castle in Hollywood since 1987. And I'm one of a handful of performers who works every venue there. Mm-hmm. You know, small, medium, and large, close-up, parlor, palace, peller, and the bar. I do all of it. Ah. Uh, the only thing I don't do is I don't do children's magic. I don't <laughs> stuff women in boxes. So you don't do the Sunday. <laughs> no, I do not do the Sunday brunch. I do not. I did the Sunday brunch once because. Uh, my kids were coming ah. and they were the performers who were all friends of mine were kind enough to let me come in and kind of MC the, MC the show and do a spot. Okay. So that my kids, they were quite young at the time. Uh, my older boys, I should say my twins, um, and they were able to see me. But that's the only time I've ever worked a brunch at so the castle.
1: are when, when you built your magic room and you you lock yourself away for a year, you don't see your wife, when you come out, is she like, how's your card chops? Or is she like, what, well, what did you learn? You know, to... to uh,
2: I went a little crazy that year. And actually, there's a piece I'm doing in the show this week where I actually talk about this in a serious way. And... Um, you know, I did go a little nuts that year, and uh, I, I, it was very challenging. It was very challenging. I'd been working full-time since I was 17. Yeah. I'd been in a career since I was 17, my first career. And um, I'd never not, get, not gotten a paycheck. Mm. So, uh, as I say in this piece I'm doing, I, you know the hardest trick I had to learn that year was to try and accept and embrace the idea that just sitting in my chair and thinking... And practicing was worthy, productive use of my time because I was not raised to be an artist. Yeah, Mm. and I was raised with great interest and exposure to the arts, but I was also raised with an inherent bias that I didn't even know, recognize, that you know the arts are really important but they have nothing to do with what you do for a living. <laughs> you get a real job, you go to school, you yeah. get a real job. Yeah. And those two things were miles away in my head. And it wasn't until you know, many, many, many years later that I recognized, oh man. you know, Because I started to think, because I'm also a serious writer. I've written six books and, and I've written millions of words as a book reviewer and an essayist and whatever. And when I finally realized I was a writer uh, and it wasn't just a side pursuit. Um, I thought, well, why didn't I, why didn't I just become a writer? Because I was a good writer in school. I yeah. was, I was, I was in elementary school. They used to stick these stories I'd write. They'd stick it up on the board for all the kids to read. Because uh-huh. I invented a, 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 car- a fanciful character, and they, they, uh, the kids would want to read the next installment.
1: Oh, that's cool. And, yeah.
2: then, and then in high school, I was editor-in-chief of the... Even though I was all over the map in high school and I was in radical politics and, and my grades were all over the map, but I was editor-in-chief of the literary magazine. So why didn't I just become a writer? I would have had a much more sensible career and I would have been, you know, maybe writing in a more mainstream way as opposed to writing about my fringe subject yeah. of magic, you know. Yeah. Um, Did you have any... F- Training as a writer outside of like high school. In... No, I'm just a, I'm I'm an autodidact. I'm just a guy who reads books and has an opinion. Ah. I dropped out of college. I dropped out of college. I basically, if you if you dig, nobody ever does this, but if you dig in, dig down in my Facebook page information where it says college and it says Brooklyn College. And it says, and where it says major, mm-hmm. it says student deferment. <laughs> <laughs> that was my dad's, so, dad's major, too. <laughs> so, I was, so I was in college for a year and a half. I went in at 17 because uh, I'd skipped a grade in school and whatever. And I went in at 17. And when the government caught up with me uh, and they refused my other attempts to, to, to get, you know, conscience objector or whatever, uh, I dropped out of school. It wasn't any good to me anymore. I really wasn't cut out for it. So I'm I'm completely self-educated on everything I've ever done in my life.
1: Now, what uh, what job was your parents sort of hoping that you would go into? Uh,
2: well, I was raised a New York secular Jew, so of course, you know, was, my mom wanted me a doc- wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> my father wouldn't have minded if I'd been a lawyer, but he wasn't. He was not as dead. You know, he w- he didn't really have that narrow view. And as a matter of fact. But I couldn't have changed careers. That's what the piece is about. Keep coming back to it here. Um, I couldn't have changed careers. I don't know if I would have changed careers if my dad yeah. had, if my dad hadn't said, Go do it. And uh so but you know, my mom in that conventional kind of way and whatever. And then I was also interested, I have a deep history of interest in wildlife. Wildlife I was in a wildlife activist and I was in the pet and aquarium industry. Wow. It was my first career. What would you do in that? Well, I worked in retail. I managed retail stores, but I also wrote, starting when I was about 20, I wrote I wrote articles for national pet ma- industry magazines that mostly had to do with husbandry. I can't believe we're talking about this. Um, <laughs> this is perfect. About, this is, about, this about is husbandry <laughs> uh, and captive maintenance of uh, coral reef fish, saltwater mm-hmm. aquarium. which is a very difficult thing that we didn't know anything about in those days, and um, snakes and reptiles. Okay. And the only reason I was doing all that was because I had a passion for those subjects, but I didn't have the school to go into the legit
0: Mm -hmm. world,
2: the zoo world. So I did that for a decade. I was very successful. I was very well known. But um, then I tried, I had an opportunity. I got interviewed three times to be the first curator of education at the Staten Island Zoo in New York. And that would have been a change in life. And what I should have done was cut my hair. I didn't cut my (laughs) hair. hair was down my ass. And uh, that's probably why I didn't get the job. And once I didn't get that job, that was at the tail end when you could get in the zoo trade without having advanced degrees. Today, you need a master's just to be a keeper. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's when I basically said, I'm I'm done with the pet industry because I can't. It's a predatory industry. And I can't stay in this the rest of my life. So I just left. so, uh, how do we get on to that? And
1: are you doing magic throughout all of this still? As a hobby.
2: Yeah. As a hobby. Yeah. And going I went to the, I came up in, at Tannins. I'm a Tannins kid. And yeah. Not, they didn't have a camp in those days. But I'm a Tannins boy. Louis Tannin, the founder of Tannins, was my first sleight of hand teacher. and um, And then throughout my teens, my father took me to my first. To Tannin's Jubilees, was the annual convention they did every year up in the Catskills. And then I got old enough to start going on my own. So, and
0: would you have seen Tom Noddy at those? Because that's how Tom Yeah, so the
2: thing, so yes, I did see Tom there, but I didn't meet him. Um, and I saw Tom's f- first uh, time on Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't recall if he did more. I think he may have done more. But I, 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 I have vivid memories of Tom on Carson. And the funny thing about me doing the Moisture Festival, and Tom, that you bring that up, is that even though I have old friends with the Karamazovs and with Abner and all that, Tom and I never crossed paths. We never met. And so we, we didn't actually connect until I friended him on Facebook years ago, some years ago mm-hmm. and then we started chat on facebook knew who each other were and it wasn't till my first moisture festival a few years ago that i finally got to meet him face to face and wow. i got and and i talked about this when i introduced him on stage because it was a kick for me because i am yeah. imc shows here at, yep. the, at the festival and it was a it was really a kick and i told the audience a story mm-hmm. about you know how he just knocked me out in that spot I never never forgot it, and now it was great to finally meet yeah. him. And, and
1: you get to see that exact spot yeah, <laughs> live
2: okay. right there. Yeah, man, it was
0: great. It was really it was it was great. I was I. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things we we always say is one of the cool things about this festival is the people who blew your mind. You're like, yeah. what you're backstage drinking a beer with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. My, my icons were the Raspini brothers. and then oh, I, of yeah, And I was emceeing a show here where they were in, and I was like, this is the same yeah, thing. I was it's just great. like it's great. These guys were my mentors. They inspired me. Like, yeah, and you know. in
2: fact, it was um, Mark uh, uh, who's leading the band this this mm-hmm. week, the yeah. Naked Truth Band, and who is one, who's a Karamazov, a longtime Karamazov, and I'm old friends with him. And he was one of the ones who basically said to me a few years ago, he said, man, you ought to really, you just need to come and do the festival. And I said, well, I don't really know those guys who are running, whatever, and, you know, what do I need to do, or whatever, and he went, just,
1: just, just." you
2: know, and I wrote Tim a nice letter, and I said, you know, hi, you can check on me with, you know, Avner and Paul from the... From the uh, Caramaz or whatever, and I just got this email back. You know, in a minute. Yeah, great.
1: <laughs> yeah, what do you want to do? We were do? too intimidated to ask you. What do you want to do? Send us your veil. You
2: know? <laughs> and then I was stupid enough to, uh, you know, want to emcee. So uh,
1: it's a be- I, it's a beast. To you know MC these shows. So that's the
2: thing about that is, and I always keep meaning to ask Tim. Maybe I'll remember this year. I'm I'm really curious, like how many performers come in. And want to emcee and I imagine it's not many because the shows I've seen is mostly you know that crew that's been with the festival forever
0: yeah
2: who are emceeing the shows and um, but I was like pick me because yeah. I've been emceeing <laughs> show for years I when yeah. I was in New York Monday Night Magic until I moved to San Diego Todd Robbins and I just alternated. We did 100% of the emceeing between mm-hmm. the two of us. We would just alternate every other week. And uh, that's really how I became a, a, an accomplished MC. I yeah. was not when we started that show. Todd was.
0: Um, and so if you don't know who Todd is, Todd uh, ran Todd, the Coney yeah. Island Sideshow for a long time.
2: Yeah, so Todd is like America's premier sideshow type performer. Mm-hmm. And he was, as you say, he was with Coney Island Sideshow for many years, but he's done a number of... Very significant one-man shows, um, including he did a spiritualism ghost show called Play Dead that was uh, co-written with and directed by Teller. Uh, He's a very, very accomplished man, a hardest working guy in show business, and one of my oldest friends. I was best man at his wedding. And when Monday Night Magic started to happen, I called him and said, we need an MC." (laughs) And... uh, and he uh, he came on board, so uh, so yeah. So anyway, I said to Tim, "Hey, pick me. I'll emcee this because it looks hard." Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it is hard. Yeah, it's <laughs> hard, man. Yeah, you know, it really is hard. Because it is
1: here's a little bit more sporadic. It's not as they're not hand. There's no one stage manager handing you here's here's the intros.
2: Forget that. I'm yeah, doing you got to go that. find I'm the doing people. All that. Yeah, find that, then I got to edit the bios. Yeah, I got to you know. I got this little you know, it's all like cut up and clipped yep. and whatever, and God <laughs> forbid they make a ch I'm waiting to hear, you know, I just today it's the first night mm-hmm. and I'm i on the first show, which that's like, oh, I'd much rather <laughs> be doing a guest.
1: Well box. you get a feel and for the other yeah, acts exactly. too. Yeah. So
2: now I gotta look at the board and I gotta see have there been any changes or is there somebody nude, somebody conch out, whatever. What's the running order? Yeah. And I gotta remember to talk to the acts and go, what are you closing on? So I exactly. know when I'm going out. And How
1: then, much time do I need to do and between I this? try and
2: remember what they're closing on. And, and, you know, so it's, it's, uh, and then, but it's so much fun too, because the vibe is so good. The crowd is happy. Yeah. Not fighting the crowd. Um, and live band,
1: you know. Right, you don't so see that anymore. I got a
2: band. I got a band leader to <laughs> screw with. If nobody else gets the joke, at least you know they will. They're gonna rim shot you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I love that. You know. Well, so, that's
0: that's one of the cool things about this is uh, the the previous guest we had up here was like, "There's a live band here." We're oh like, yeah, right. Yeah, like it's the it's the. Yeah, cool you don't know, really see that awesome.
1: a lot. They I don't just, see it a lot anymore. No, yeah. not
2: at all. No, absolutely. And in fact, you know, Mike Caveney. Who is uh, I think going to be here next? He'll week. He'll be here okay. next week,
0: and we've we've done a podcast with him on the Worship Festival MCing, podcast. Do you know, he does sometimes. I think
2: okay, because he's one of the greatest MCs like in America. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just one of the. There's a handful of guys who are known for MCing in the magic world: Max Maven, Gene Anderson, Cavney mm-hmm. is a monster. He's really, absolutely one of the best. Oh yeah, he's flawless, um, and he's incredibly funny, and he's uh, got great. Killer material, and he's a really he's a joke smith, like, he's an extremely careful, precise joke writer and character, and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. He's a truly great performer, and he's a great MC. So, I was wondering when I saw him, I'm sorry to be missing him, but I was wondering if he was gonna MC here because he's a monster as an MC, like, you can't get like, <laughs> ah. and um, never let him see a sweat, like, he's always just cool as a cucumber, and um, anyway, uh. Uh, oh, but I remember Mike saying to me many, many, many years ago because he's a very, very successful corporate platform performer. If you're going to be a if you're going to be a platform variety performer today, by today I mean the last fifty years, you're working in corporate audiences. And I remember many years ago Mike saying to me, um, "I was born too late. I, I missed I missed Vaudeville. <laughs> you know, I missed having a curtain. I missed having a band." Yep. specifically yeah. I remember that's yeah. what made me think of this uh, I remember he said this to me 25 years ago but I always remember him saying I missed having a band and now I walk on to recorded music on a little platform in a corporate in a banquet room and all I have is a microphone and maybe a light
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know and I and always, that always stuck in my head yeah. that it was a really interesting comment because it's not just a nostalgic wishful thinking comment it actually goes deeper than that because it does say, it does speak to, that that is what we are doing. We're actually, we are vaudeville performers, Mm -hmm. and at a different time, we would have been in a 2,500 seat or 5,000 seat ornate Beaux-Arts theater. With a with an orchestra and all of that, and we just live in a different time. Yep. But what we're doing is the same. <laughs> what we're doing is the yeah. same. We haven't changed. The world has changed around us. Mm-hmm. The the setting we're in has yeah. changed, but we're still doing the same thing. And that's a it was a really interesting con, uh, comment.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm interested because um, they have the show band, but you're right. Half the acts they're they're set to. Tr- music tracks and like right. all the circus acts right we in the old
2: days man yeah. you came in with charts exactly yeah. you came into charts you gave the band the charts you know and then you did bits one of my mentor my my last great mentor was a very famous legendary magician by the name of johnny thompson also mm-hmm. known as the great Thompsonian company and company referring to his wife pamela um and they did one of the most legendary silent comedy magic acts in the history of magic. But they also did many other things. And in fact, John was known as he took great pride being known as a general practitioner because he did every kind of magic there was, literally every kind of magic there was. And he was also he later in his career when he wound down as a performer, he became the, the number one magic consultant. If, if anyone who ever heard of a magician if you'd heard of that magician that magician had used John Thompson as a consultant and for 20 years he was a resident consultant to Penn and Teller and he was a dear friend and a mentor to me and kind of second him and his wife were kind of second family to me and i wrote his collected life works the magic of Johnny Thompson which is a two volume set that weighs Nine pounds <laughs> and sold for three hundred dollars and sold out in three weeks of first printing.
0: If I'm remembering right, he came out of vaudeville as a harmonica player, right? Well, he's beyond
2: he's after vaudeville. Okay. okay? It's too late for vaudeville. But yes, he began as a harmonica player. That's right. In fact, he began as a bass harmonica player. Um, as a bass jazz harmonica player. So he used to say, you know, like the only thing he could switch to that would be even less obscure and less likely to make a living at was magic, um, and uh, yeah, so he was uh, he and he was with there was this period where there was this fad of these harmonica bands, and uh, I don't mean to say there was fifty of them. I mean there was three, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing one of them on the Harmonicats on the on the uh, Ed Sullivan show when I was a kid, and he was in one of those bands, ah. and he was a very accomplished musician. And he actually wrote, this is what came to mind, because he wrote the charts for another legendary magician, uh, Channing Pollock, who was the guy who basically invented bird magic um, or dub magic as we know it today, (coughs) Um, and Johnny, who learned a bunch of magic from who adapted some of Channing's magic for his own act because he was doing a sort of a burlesque version, a, co- a cod comedy version of mm-hmm. of uh, Channing's act. Uh, John wrote, literally wrote the music charts for Channing. Wow! Uh, so John all, and John worked in Vegas for years, years and years and years. He was a staple in Vegas, worked every big stage in Vegas, and. You know, he would hand the orchestra the charts, and not only did he give them the charts for the music, but he had comedy bits that he did with the band. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he, you know. So the
0: million-dollar question: Did you, from San Diego, did you bring charts for the band? No, I don't bring <laughs> charts for the band. But I, yeah,
2: I, I, don't, I don't. But but Mark and I have talked a bit, and he knows, especially for the MC stuff and the opening of the show. He's more than welcome to just jump in and mess with me. Yeah, you know, they like are he fantastic. He was, he was, he was, he was, he's my friend and he was a little, I remember the first show I did, you know, and after I was like, you're, you're you know, you're so cautious, man. You can do more. He said, well, I didn't want to, you know, overplay it or get in your way. I went, just go for it. You can't hurt, you can't <laughs> yeah. hurt me. Yeah. Because um, I just love that idea that there's a, there's a band there. And I was refreshing my memory because I have video of my show openings every year mm-hmm. And I was refreshing my video, my memory recently, and it reminded me of you know there's You're like, a oh I got these nice three jokes I told you yeah. back and forth, yeah. you know with the band, so it's, yeah it's a great it's just a great thing. It just brings a certain yeah. liveliness and yeah it's a different thing.
1: What what's some other things that you know you've been performing for for a long time? Yeah. What's some other things about the Moisture Festival that sort of make you want to keep place, coming back? So it's
2: The only place because different worlds and show business, you know. It's the only time I've ever introduced an aerial act. Oh. Like, that's the coolest, to me, that's the coolest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I get to introduce an aerial act. And (laughs) and there's an aerial act on the same show as me. Like, that's, I just think that's, I just think that's cool as hell. And uh, it's just that whole thing. And it's just such an unconventional kind of, catalog of performers you know I might be on a show with one of these performers in in some other place you know or something but not like this where yeah. everything it's a new thing every moment and
1: what's the, the weirdest thing, thing that you've seen that
2: I've seen here yeah
1: and then we'll say in general after that <laughs>
2: uh, I'm trying to think what's the weirdest I don't I'm not we can go with in general uh well, again, on my show, I'm not, i not—I don't run into strange things in my show. You're so mostly doing not, stuff. Uh, you're yeah, solo. I'm, I'm yeah. doing solo, or I'm, emceeing very straightforward kind of corporate kind of shows, or or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm trying. I mean, well, when I first met <laughs> uh, Todd Robbins, so I was living in D.C. in the late '80s because I was I moved to be a performer at a place called the Inner Magic, and um, I moved back to New York. In the beginning of 92, and I went to go work at Mostly Magic, which was a magic club in Greenwich Village run by a great magician by the name of Imam. And uh, I started working there uh, once a week on Wednesday nights. I worked behind the bar, and then I'd do some close-up magic to close the show. And then once every two months or something, I would headline on the weekend shows. And, you know, it was an intimate theater, parlor theater kind of thing. Great, and uh, the first time I headlined uh, the opening Todd was the opening act for me, and I'd never met him I had knew nothing about him and he was only he was first he came up in the magic world but on the west coast, but he was moving into this direction of the, of all this sideshow type stuff, and he uh, broke a a cement brick over his head, over his own head, okay? And you you didn't know this was going to happen? No, he's standing there with a big cement block over his head and balancing it with one hand, and he's got like a little sledgehammer in the other, and he's banging himself in the head until the block splits in two. And I'm like, I have got to meet this guy. So... I took him aside, you know, as soon as the show was over. I was like, "Man, that was great. What's your story?" You know, and um, and we start talking. And the funny thing was, was so I lived. I lived in the Hell's Kitchen. I lived on the corner of Forty Fifth and Ninth. And uh, I said, "Well, that's great, man." I said, "Where do you live?" He goes, and I and I had just moved back to New York, and I was thrilled to be living in that neighborhood. I dreamed of living in Manhattan. I would spent my life in Brooklyn before I moved away. I dreamed of living in Manhattan. I dreamed of living in uh, in that neighborhood, and uh, it was just the best place I ever lived in my life. And um, and it was right off, you know, Forty Second Street before it became, uh, you know, Disney Times Square, mm-hmm. Epcot Times Square. So. I like the old version in some ways. So, um, anyway, I said, Where do you live? He goes, 45th and 9th. And I said, I live at 45th and 9th. He goes, No, I live, I live at 45th and 9th. Where do you really live? 45th of night. and 9th. Now, the thing about Todd is he can be very deadpan, and he's a very funny guy. He can be very deadpan, and he has a little bit of a Machiavellian twist to his personality. And he is known on occasion to screw with people. And all of that reads on him even the first time you meet him or see him on stage. So I thought the more I kept asking him, the more, and he kept denying it, but he kept kind of giving me this look, and I'm like, this guy is gaslighting me. (laughs) Right? And I went, yeah, here, man. So I was like a a little put off.
1: I love that You weren't put off by the cement <coughs> block being hammered on his head.
2: Yeah, that was great. But then he gave you so, a ride home. And- that's just another. That's like one of my. You know, that's just another one of my friends. You know, whatever. So, one night, about two weeks later, I'm in the. You know, every other block in New York in Manhattan has a Korean deli mm-hmm. that's open 24 hours, and I walk downstairs and I walk across the street to the deli to get something, and I walk in and there he is, and I went. You do live here and went yeah across there and it turned out he lived on like the other corner like the, across the street from. wow me. wow and uh i went okay man i thought for sure you were just <laughs> pulling my chain and that led to us you know and in those years we were bachelors and you know we were out together all the time and he would pick up my mail if i was on the road or i would pick up his mail if he was on the road and it was like that so anyway so in terms of strange acts, <laughs> that's, that's you know, I, got, I you know I was around him when he was teaching himself how to swallow swords, which is which is a really grotesque thing to do when you're like an adult, and um, and he was teaching himself how to uh, regurgitate, meaning how to swallow and regurgitate, mm-hmm. which for that show he was doing with giant um, cockroaches. Oh.
1: So he would swallow the so f- the live cockroaches. Yeah, How long up. can they sit down there before you?
2: I, I can't answer that. Question. <laughs> now I used to work. Now I used to work at, as a docent at the, in the insect zoo at the National Museum of Natural History in the in the Smithsonian in DC. So I actually used to do demonstrations with tarantulas and with uh, a Madagascar hissing roaches. So I actually know more about them than you.
0: Except but how long they last. Long. But how long they
2: last <laughs> down, been eaten. down some whack job's trachea, I cannot exactly, precisely answer.
1: I want to know what's going through your mind when you don't know what this guy is doing while he's opening up for you and he's smashing the cement oh, block great. on no, your head. Are you like, I have to great. follow this? No, like, no, like, that's fine. No, that's oh.
2: great. No, that was great. This is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, you know, there's a line in one of the... So I've been... I was associated with Penn & Teller for many, many years. I was a writer for them and worked on a TV series with them and whatever. And Penn and I were very close friends at one time when we lived in a similar neighborhood. Anyway, there's a line in an old routine of theirs that one of the few routines they really haven't revived much in Vegas, I think they did it once in Vegas, called um, How We Met was the official title. Mm -hmm. The backstage title was Cuffed to a Creep. (laughs) And it was this kind of weird, like, Edward Albee waiting for Godot thing where Teller is quietly sitting on a park bench. He's got sunglasses on. And Penn comes strolling by, you know, whistling or whatever. singing I've seen this. And then he starts talking to Teller. He sits down and he starts talking to Teller. And Teller won't talk to him or whatever. And now there's this dialogue that's not really a dialogue. Penn trying to get him to talk, and then suddenly Penn discovers, he goes, well, okay, I guess you're having a rough day, so I'll, I'll move on, and when he stands up to get up, to leave, to leave, he discovers he's handcuffed to Teller, and now they have to deal with all that. Anyway, it's a great little piece, and um, very offbeat, you know, very Pen and Teller, but there's a great line that uh, a mutual friend and I used to say that was the the perfect line that absolutely captured Pandulette's personality, which was he would stand up, he would discover that he was handcuffed, and he'd stand and he'd look at it for a moment and he'd go and then he'd say, "This is great. This is terrific. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a great way to live. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's a way to be. Actually, and um, I think that's exactly how I felt when I saw Todd Bank yeah. break a brick over. <laughs> I don't know that. what it this is, is, but it's great. Awesome. This is terrific. What is it?
0: <laughs> so, you're you're a writer of magic books. You said mm-hmm. six. Yeah, and three are...
2: collections of essays. So I'm the only person in the history of magic who's written entire books that are just collections of essays. That's cool. So right? I am an essayist. That's really what I do. That's really my form. I'm also a a book critic. I I, I I wrote book criticism for more than 20 years, but that's a kind of a form of the essay, if you will. And uh, so I've written three collections of essays. I wrote the giant Johnny Thompson book. I co-wrote a book called The Art of Magic, which is a companion to a 1997 PBS documentary. And then my most recent book is uh, a small book called uh, Conjurer's Conundrum, which is about the history of the intersection between magic and uh, skepticism and critical thinking, and the first half of that little book is about the the sort of world history of that, going back four centuries, and the second half is my personal history, my years of involvement with the James Randi Educational Foundation, and. Uh, randy million dollar challenge and were
0: you one of the like the judges on the million dollar check i don't know if the judge is the right word but yeah i was so there was a subcommittee so for many many years
2: james randy taking a inspiration from harry houdini james randy offered a personal check for ten thousand dollars for anyone who could demonstrate a paranormal ability that he couldn't explain or duplicate and um Eventually, then he found a way he he had people make a promissory commitment that if the test was ever lost, they would commit to putting up a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. And he accumulated a million dollars in promises, and it became the million-dollar challenge. But then when the Randy Foundation was endowed, then there was actually a million dollars put into escrow for the million-dollar challenge. So there was a committee, a subcommittee of people, including... D.J. Grothy, who was um, the president of the foundation. Chip Denman, uh, along with his partner, Grace Denman. Uh, Chip was a uh, statistician. There was my old friend Banachek, America's leading mentalist, longtime colleague of Randy's, Mm -hmm. and myself. And we were mostly made up the committee that ran the Million Dollar Challenge. And every year at TAM which is the amazing meeting, the Randy Conference convention, Skeptic Convention was the largest skeptic convention running in those years. Um, On the final event, the final night, Sunday night, after the rest of the conference had had completed, um, typically we would do a a, a million-dollar test on stage. Did anyone ever
1: pass the test? No. Nobody. No,
2: and the, sta- and the test we did every year at, the, at TAM was actually always, it was not a test for the million. It was a preliminary trial in which the stakes, uh, not just the stakes, in which the requirements to pass were much, much lower than the million dollar would have mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to lower that threshold to see if we could at least get somebody through to go to another level. Uh. We actually always wanted that but you if you lower it you still have to lower it within reason not cuz you're worried about the money but because you need a statistical significance you yeah. have to demonstrate an effect and we would we would we progressively over the years we didn't announce those numbers public we didn't publish those numbers but but we progressively lowered those that that threshold and still no one Nothing. ever got through the first layer ah. um, you know they end up doing they end up with results
0: so that what are what, approximately
2: what, predicted by chance
1: what would be some examples of what people might try
2: right, or, or so. like what what the test like do you like yeah so the, part of the thing about the million dollar challenge was we did not have a bunch of off the she- off the shelf tests or standard tests because people come in with all kinds of claims mm-hmm. and so the idea the way the test was structured and this is what made the whole project so difficult and time consuming on our side is we would examine the claim and then we would design a test protocol. We would have to design the experiment and then we would have to get the subject to agree to that protocol. And uh, most subjects don't know what an experimental protocol is, Yeah, you know? Um, and so that's what made the whole thing incredibly difficult and it would take, you know, ages to get people through just to navigate that part of it um but it was fun there was an element of that that was fun on our part because we had to be very creative to come up with essentially scientific protocols that would that would legitimately was a legitimate way to test Mm -hmm. the claimed effect but also that was um, hopefully as close as we could get, uh, cheating proof. Yeah, and uh, and also bias proof because yeah. it's double blinded. Had to be double blinded, and so you know it was complicated. So you know we had like we had a really good test one year for a guy who was putting out a version of these magnet bracelets. You know this kinesiology mm-hmm. bracelets that improve your balance, and they do that test. At malls, for example, they'll sell these where that yeah, where you hold your hand out and uh, you know when you stand and they push back at you and you hold your balance or, and then then they put the ma- they put the bracelet on you or whatever the magic token is and then you become more stable and more difficult to pull over. Well, that's test itself. That's not a, that thing they do. That demo. Let's not call it a test. They pretend it's a test. It's a demo. That demo that they do is actually phony. But not necessarily deliberately phony by the demonstrator because, it, like many things that rely on the ideomotor effect, such as pendulums or dowsing, the ideomotor effect works in ways where the the person who's doing it, who's making the dowsing rods move, who's making the pendulum swing, who is Administering the so-called balance test, um, they are actually influencing and making the action happen, but they're unaware of the fact that they're directing it. It's unconscious. Wait, mm-hmm. so dowsing
1: rods aren't real? <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And and so dowsers, you know, and and people like that are, tend to be what we call shut eyes in that they're not deliberate deceivers. They actually believe what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what, that's what happens with these kinestheology tests. And, and the guy with the bracelet who was selling the bracelet absolutely believed, I, th- I think believed in what he was selling. He was just wrong. Yeah. And um, but we, you know, we devised a very, a, a, you know, very interesting protocol so that and it had to do with randomizing the. the bracelet was in a box for the person to hold. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. where you have to can have it in your hand and and the idea was that the boxes were randomized so we didn't so he didn't know he was administering the demo but he didn't know if that person had a real quote-unquote real bracelet in his hand yeah. or or nothing or fake or whatever and it was really interesting to devise absolutely that, yeah you know, so it, anyway
0: <laughs> Well, it's crazy. Those how- tests
2: are on, on are on YouTube actually, uh, and to me, it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing to both Manichek and myself that anyone watches them because they they take forever and they're boring as hell.
1: <laughs> Mostly scientists, but, probably. But
2: yeah. um, no, I think skeptics. I think skeptics. Or, a, yeah. or a
0: guy are, trying to tell his partner like, hey, yeah, maybe we shouldn't yeah, buy yeah. this. But they get views. Like, or they have Yuri Geller, Geller trying
1: YouTube. to figure out how to cheat the system. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, he, he, Geller didn't need that. He just avoids. He just Spent a career avoiding people who knew anything.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're a writer of like magic books, and that's one of the f- the variety arts that has the most stuff written about. That's what they say. Yeah, they say what? there's
2: more books published every year about magic than any other variety art. I don't know if it's literally true, but it's oft repeated.
0: I mean, you're you're a contributor to that. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Why why do you think that is? Oh, why do I think
1: that is? Magicians are smarter.
0: <laughs> they love they're, to read.
1: They're better, right? <laughs>
2: That's a good question. I think that um, partly it may have to do with uh, what's required for instruction in magic. Okay. Because the instruction in sleight of hand is complicated. And uh, although video, of course, has exploded in the last uh, couple, several decades, still uh reading technical descriptions in a in a print book is a different thing Mm -hmm. um i also think there's just a tradition of literature in conjuring that's different than other arts you know there are these each these different arts have different traditions how they pass things along you know the circus world is very insular Mm -hmm. and they don't they don't talk about their stuff they just don't you know, They're better at keeping was, secrets than I, magicians. I, I was with a bunch of people once at a, at a uh, county fair. Uh, Penn was there with me. Uh, we were with a bunch of friends at a county fair, and we were watching one of these troops that does this old carny thing of uh, the motorcycle cage, yeah. the, the steel ball motorcycle yeah. cage. Ball of death. Three guys in a motorcycle, on uh, motorcycles. And there was a guy with us who was not one of us. Someone had brought this guy along, and he's kind of green. And uh, he walked away from us, and during a break, he found those guys. And he went back and started asking them questions uh, about how the thing works. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had to rescue him from a fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) So, and as far as I'm concerned, he's the one who was in the wrong. He was just a dopey mark. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, no, you know, you might as well, you know, you might as well walk up to a money operator and go, hey, so show me how you throw that card. You know yeah. what, what the hell are you doing? And um, so, a lot of those worlds are very insular. Circus worlds very insular. Very generous if you're within the world, but mm-hmm. you got to be inside. And, um, and then like jugglers and magicians, you know, I had this conversation decades ago with, with, with Penn late one night in a hot tub in the Las Vegas desert, because he came up as a juggler and I came up as a magician. And we were talking about all the differences between that. And it was, and he educated me about that in a number of interesting ways. And one of the things is, is that jugglers just assume that everybody owns the trick. Mm. The if they see a trick the only question is can you learn to do it or not Mm -hmm. and magicians are the opposite magicians are very protective of a trick and just because you see a trick doesn't give you the right to, or can figure it out doesn't give you the right to do it Mm. unless that trick is either personally given to you or it's published in some way Mm -hmm. and performance is not publication and uh So there's different values in different communities and there's also different ways in which things are communicated. And, um, you know, I think jugglers like just show everything to each other, you know. There's a lot of that. Do this kind of thing. So I don't know. I think there's a long history of literature and conjuring and... um, I think yeah, I- and it gives a chance for creators to talk about their work and explain their work, and not just explain the technology of their work. Since the '80s and, my, and the late Eugene Berger, it's very common for magic books to include essays that include theory and performance thoughts of the performer, um, which prior to the early 1980s was always concealed, if you will, in the introduction to books. Mm-hmm. And I once wrote an essay called "Making Introductions." which is about the fact that when I came up, I used to love to read and reread the introductions to these old magic books because that was the only place that the author gave his opinion about things and <laughs> gave advice or creative advice or whatever. And I was shocked later in my life to learn that a lot of magicians never read the introductions. They just want to go straight to the tricks. <laughs> How <laughs> can you not read the introduction? It's the best part of the book.
0: Yeah, you don't, they're and, skipping ahead uh, to the technical manual. So
2: I wrote a whole essay, a long essay, you know, Talking about some of the, be- uh, quoting from some of the best in my favorite introductions throughout the literature of magic. So, anyway.
1: Yeah, plus, like, the book on breaking a cinder block on your head is <laughs> much thinner.
2: <laughs> and that's, an, and see, sideshow, like, if you want to learn how to eat glass, like, Todd eats glass, Todd Robbins eats glass. He's a glass eater, among other things. And, you know, he was taught, he was taught the blockhead by Melvin Burkhardt, the guy who is the... Sort of most famous for making the blockhead into the iconic sideshow act it is. And uh, Melvin was a mentor to Todd in that regard. Um, but there are other things in the sideshow that are, anybody will teach you fire eating. Uh, that's an entry level skill in the side. The, the, the lowest entry level in the sideshow is magic. <laughs> and next comes fire eating. And, uh, but as you move up, in the self-made freak skills, uh, when you get towards the top, you know, then there's bl- blockhead, it's in the middle. And uh, then there's sword swallowing, which is really, 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 really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the- and there's glass eating, which is really hard and dangerous. Uh, as his sword swallow.
1: then regurgitating where is that? Yeah, in go, the totem pole <laughs> and,
2: uh, and Todd is you know, a really good glass eater. He's been eating glass his whole life and, I mean his whole professional life and, and when we used to hang out back in those days when we hung out together, you know we'd go into a bar and you know we'd be performing stuff whatever and you know he would have a guy unscrew a light bulb from the lamp over the bar and, and eat it. Or he'd, or, he'd, or he'd drink a martini, and then he'd eat the glass and leave the stem. And, you know, and I wrote an article about him for Genie Magazine many years ago called Why I Hate Todd Robbins, or I Hate Todd Robbins. And the reason I hate Todd Robbins was if I was going to perform something in that situation, I knew I had to go first. Yeah, Because once you've eaten a glass... Nobody wants to see a card.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs>
2: like, or, or they may want to see it, but they're certainly not talking about it. They're still talking about that freaking glass. <laughs> no. So anyway, but the point is, it's very hard to learn to eat glass to get somebody to show it to you. The guys are very secretive about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, you mentioned Genie Magazine, and I have this written down. I went on eBay, and I found a Genie Magazine with you on the cover. Yeah, there's two of them. And the coolest mustache. Oh, I think now see, <laughs> was, I was
2: wearing that. Before it became a hipster thing, yeah, it was like before they knew, invented hipsters. Either. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, so back in the uh, in the '70s, my first look as a performer was um, with a pretty, with a goatee and a really elaborate wax mustache, and a fedora, typically a fedora. My hair a little long, and uh, that was my initial look, um, and I gave that up about. The very end of the '90s, around '99 or so, I think. Mm. And uh, I
1: think it could make a comeback. I think. Well, it did.
2: It made a comeback, but that's then I was Just lo- not on you. Not on, yeah, I'm not interested. You know, not, I was interested in it because I was the only one who. I was the only one. I mean, I yeah. just. I mean, nobody you just never saw it.
1: Well, I bought it. So, <laughs> best $18 ever It's
0: taped above your bed
1: <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's a few good photos in that one If I remember correctly
1: Now, uh, we don't want to take up all your time I have one one more question It says, um, I read that you were consulted On Neil Gaiman's American Gods Yes, that's right Is that the show or the book? or?
2: B- well, both, but primarily the book Wow Yeah, so Neil and I are very, very old friends And uh, we met Actually, I think we met backstage at a Penn & Teller show in Vegas. And um, we kind of hit... We had dinner together. kind of hit it off. And um, he was writing American Gods at that time. And Neil is a magic buff. He doesn't do magic at all. Oh, really? Hmm. But he's a magic buff. And he actually, like, reads magic books. And um, so the the protagonist in American Gods, Shadow Moon, teaches himself coin magic while yeah. he's in prison. Uh, essentially, obviously, reading from Bobo is, is the implication. Mm-hmm. Of, I'm sorry, but not on a magic podcast, but a, a famous book called Modern Coin Magic by J.B. Bobo. And, um, and Neil wanted the magic references, mentions in the book, to be authentic. Accurate, so he asked me if I would look that stuff over, and I went sure. And so I looked over all of that. He's, he would just send me any references to magic in the course of the book, and I would try and clean it up for him or describe other ide- related ideas and how things that meant about misdirection. And he was pretty uh, assiduous in taking uh, my advice, except in one case that we argued for a while, and eventually he said, you're right. He actually wrote about this publicly years later somewhere on some blog. He said, you're right, but artistically I needed to go, th- I need mm-hmm. the other way. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we became friends, and we've been friends ever since, and I'm Extremely close friends with his wife, Amanda Palmer, the rock star. Oh,
1: I didn't know they were married.
2: Yeah. Uh, she's great. And she's a, a, one of my closest friends. And, he, and uh, I helped her write her uh, viral hit TED Talk called The Art of Asking. And then I helped her write her New York Times bestseller by the same title. Uh, we traveled around the country together for about six months working on that book. Uh, and anyway when the American God series began Neil put me put the producers on to me and said call this guy as magic consultant and whatever and I went up to LA and I had a great meeting with them and gave them a bunch of stuff and then the production house did not want to spend the money to be bringing me up and so <laughs> I ended up doing so they so they didn't hire me as a Magic Consultant, but they hired me as a script consultant on the first couple of scripts. Nice. So I did a little work on the first. That's great. Just the first couple of scripts.
1: Now, so, uh, honestliar.com is the website.
2: So there's actually two websites. There's com, Jamie the J-A-M. which is the main website. And honestliar.com is the skepticism gotcha. website. Okay. And that has all my skeptic stuff and it has skeptic gotcha. talks. There's also a YouTube tons channel, of videos. Jamie in Swiss. Yeah.
1: A ton of stuff. You can yeah. watch yeah. the Pots bracelets. You can watch. And you can
2: see, well, yeah, I mean, you can see um, my two spots on The Late Late yeah. Show, which I'm, which, you know, people like.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. And like, you have some pretty prolific work. That's worth checking out. Uh, If you guys enjoy this interview, definitely check Jamie out. Um, Any other stuff that... No, I'm looking forward
2: to uh, you know the next few days of shows. I got five shows coming up in the next few days. I'm doing a, I'm emceeing the first show tonight. Well, we're gonna watch yeah, tonight. We're gonna watch we're, it tonight. We're excited. And, uh, and uh, you know we'll be in the um, back going. Come out, come bring out. your charts. Come on. When does this? Ha- when does this? How quickly does these areas?
0: Uh, this will probably be at least a month. Yeah. Oh, so the show will be long yeah. gone. Yeah. Okay,
2: so uh,
0: you can't get to see it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
2: It was really great. It was
1: amazing. It was the best ever. <laughs> (laughs) Well, thank you, Jamie, for coming out and see me
2: next year. Yeah, we really
1: appreciate it, man. (laughs)
2: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, guys.
1: Hey, folks, want to thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Real quick, the Moisture Festival is dedicated to keeping the ticket prices to shows affordable. And they do that by relying on individual
0: donations. You can donate financially or volunteer. To get more information, go to themoisturefestival.org and click on the contribute button. You'll get all the deets there. Absolutely.
1: And if you want to just follow The Moisture Festival, you can do that on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or you can just go loiter outside of the Palladium (laughs) at Hales Ales. That's a way that you can follow them. If you want to find out more information on Louie and I, we also do a podcast on our own called The Odd and Off
0: Beat. Podcast. That's where we talk about strange news stories of the day. You can hear us chat about all things weird. Absolutely. You can do that at oddandoffbeat.com or wherever you get
1: your podcasts. If you want to find out about us individually, where we're performing at, you can find Louie at com and that's with two X's.
0: And Matt's at comedystuntshow.com.
1: That's spelt regularly. <laughs> so we would like to thank you so much for listening, so much for your time, and we hope to see you at the Moisture Festival soon. Be well. Thank
0: you for listening to Moisture Festival podcast and stay moist.